how do we ship this game? You don't want to just go buy the book because there's no book written for your live service except the one that you're writing right now. You have different developers, you have a different player base, you have uh, different publisher needs potentially, all these things. And you have to make sure that they're integrated in there so that you do the right thing at the right time. How do we make sure that the players can get our game and, and play it yeah. successfully? Have you ever tried to learn more about live service games or the skill set to build them and realized there just wasn't any information available? Do you hear a lot of people talking about live service games but don't really know exactly what they're referring to? Have you ever tried to build a live service team or product and stumbled into a bunch of challenges and uncertainty that you didn't expect? Today we have Josh Thaler with us to do a deep dive on the mindset and great teams that build the best live services. Josh is an industry veteran who brings a wealth of knowledge on the complexities of building and maintaining live service organizations. We're going to explain what great live service developers look like, how to set up an organization that can handle a live service, and some tips and tricks to help you know if it's working. Live service is the future of our industry. You're listening to Building Better Games, where we show industry leaders a better way to make games that players love. Your hosts are Benjamin Carsage and Aaron Smith. We've spent over a decade shipping some of the biggest games in the world. We've also helped game studios improve their approach to building great games across the board. Our mission is simple. Help you ship better games with less work and finally fight back against the systems that just aren't working. Josh, it's great to have you here. Do you want to expand a little bit? Go ahead, give us an introduction. Yeah, sure. My name is Josh Saylor. I've been making software for 30 years now. I started doing a lot of stuff as an engineer back in the day. I've been doing software as a service since 1999 and uh, games as a service since uh, 2009. And so I've got a lot of experience running live operations. I've seen it done well, I've seen it done poorly, and I've done both of those myself. Part of me almost wants to ask you about the biggest horror story you've ever seen in live service. <laughs> I'm just curious. Uh, biggest horror story. There's certainly a lot of them. If we go back to the riot days, it's probably where we're gonna get the best stories just because of the scale that we're mm -hmm. dealing with mm -hmm. right, at Riot Games, right? Even at, at the, around 2012, when I started at Riot, it was still of a scale that basically nobody outside of a Facebook or Amazon or anything could match at that point in time. And every day, it seemed like we had a new live service challenge because of something that we didn't know that we didn't know. One of the biggest ones, my first couple of years there was dealing with uh, DDoS attacks. It was before a lot mm -hmm. of the internet infrastructure was in place to handle DDoS attacks. And so everybody across all the live services organization had to come together and figure out what's the solution? Like, what can we do now? What can we do later? What's the future plans? Out of those plans of trying to mitigate it all, right? You adopt softwares that and sometimes became uh, industry standards like uh, Cloudflare and things like that could have been used. In addition, Riot decided they were gonna build their own backbone to help mitigate that. And that's what ended up becoming Riot Direct. And nobody could have predicted when we decided to start scaling Riot to League of Legends from where it was to where it is today, that those are things that we needed to do. Mm -hmm. Yet we had to figure out how to make them happen. Mm -hmm. That's kind of like live service in a nutshell. Like, you know what you know, but the vast majority of what you don't know, you don't know. What's going to happen when your game goes out? Those are the things where you need the, the live service. 
what does a live service mean? And what is implicated in a live service? I'm curious what comes up for you when I ask that question. Interestingly, currently I'm working my first non-live service job in a long time, production director at Cold Iron Studios. And I'm attempting to bring live service mentality and thought process mm -hmm. into that sort of core game development. So I can talk to this kind of from both directions right now. And to me, the fundamental difference between developing a game that you know is going to be a live service and developing a game that says a box product that may ship a few patches and things like that is you have to build in at the foundation, the tools, the technology, and the culture that come with thinking about the fact that people are going to be playing your game 24-7, and you have to understand how you're going to respond to whatever their issues happen to be. If you attempt to do that as an afterthought, if you're like, oh, we're just going to make a game, and then we're going to ship it, and people are going to play it, and then we'll scale the service or whatever, you're going to easily back yourself into technology holes that are hard to work yourself out of, right? That can't be scaled from. You're not going to have an organization of people that embrace at their core what it means to be handling that live service and keeping things up for players. And so for me, it's starting at that foundational level, which is often difficult if you come into an organization. You're like, you come in, you have to take them where they are and you have to help them get to where you need them to be. I look at total ownership as something that I think is very important. The farther away the person that is responsible for solving the problem is from actually feeling the pain of the problem, the less likely it is that that problem is going to be addressed immediately and effectively, right? And you see this in some organizations that distance their developers via knocks or socks or other types of Departments where you hand off your software and then someone else deploys your software and manages your software. And what that means is you don't have any skin in the game, right? If you're a developer and your phone isn't going to go off at three in the morning when the service goes down, you're not feeling that pain. So how incented are you going to be to make sure that we solve these problems as quickly as we can? So for me, that total ownership, everybody owns all these aspects of this. There may be certain people that are responsible for different things, but if you see a problem, you got to solve it. And we're saying that all of us are going to be responsible in one way or another for figuring out how to solve those problems. There's not anybody that's exempt from being in the on-call rotations. The values that you get out of that, the valuable results you get out of having that is that people feel the pain and they don't want to feel the pain again. And so what that means is there's a lot of advocacy to your teams to prioritize features or development methodologies that help to prevent or minimize that type of pain again, right? Uh, Self-healing services where you can get them, right? Auto restarting or things like that, if, if that can help. Understanding the difference between something that's critical service down and potentially not, right? If you only have a binary problem, no problem state, then everybody's phone is going off all the time, right? And you don't want yeah. that. And by making sure that the folks that are responsible for that are in the middle of the process means that eventually really you deliver a way better value for your players because those problems get solved faster in a way that actually ends up adding value. So say in the very early days of live services, like the solution to solving a problem usually was something like restart the servers or restart the service or something like that because you ran out of memory or whatever it is, right? So we're not going to fix, we're not going to look at fixing that right now because we got other features we need to develop. Mm -hmm. That mentality leads you down the road of compounding interest, 
where eventually that one little problem is going to cause you major outages uh, that you're going to have to go address. And so instead, what we do is we, we fix all those problems while they're little problems. We don't let them become big problems. You were really kind of digging into the core aspects of the mindset. And the first thing you mentioned was this idea of total ownership. Yeah, total ownership to me means that if your team, whatever team that is, has designed and written and shipped a feature, then you own that feature forever or until you find some other team that's willing to own that feature or we decide to sunset that feature and remove it out of the game. It's like Starship Troopers until I die or you find somebody better. (laughs) (laughs) It's really because it's really easy, say in a game that's been around as long as, let's say like a World of Warcraft, right? Or League of Mm -hmm. Legends or something like that. There's a lot of stuff that has gone into that game over the years that potentially is not useful anymore. And so being able to make the right call that it's not useful and we're not going to use it anymore rather than try and support it with the team that you have that you want to do more forward-thinking development or try and support it with an, a live engineering organization or something like that, which I highly discourage. I discourage any sort of throw-it-over-the-wall method of mm-hmm. game publishing. It's fraught with peril in a lot of ways. And so if you just make that conscious decision, you're like, okay, we're shipping this feature, we're owning it, right? If there's a problem, we're going to fix it. We're going to solicit, we're going to make sure we're getting the right feedback and data on it so we can tune that feature correctly so we can right, continue to maintain it and then make the right decision about when it's something that we no longer need because it's been superseded by another feature. Like say you go from an early version of your matchmaking to a 2.0 version of your matchmaking. Right? There's no reason to keep that other one around. So how do we sunset that feature? and get it out of there. I want to ask you, are there any other mindset or like cultural things? So we talked about total ownership. Is there any other like cultural or mindset things that you're like, this is really important. If you really want to bake in a live service mentality that works, like what else comes up? Well, man, I'd say there's two things. So one of them is screening for all the folks that you hire at your company, no matter what they're doing, they need to have empathy, so they can engage that both for their fellow studio members as well as for the players. Because engaging that empathy is one of the things that drives you towards total ownership, right? And, oh, I get it. I feel that pain. I understand, right? This is why we want to solve these kinds of things. The other thing you screen for is grit, right? The ability to continue to dig in on a problem and get the data you need, make sure you've got the right people in, involved to solve that problem, right? So to me, that's that's core. Those are two skills that I screen for anybody that I'm going to hire on any team that I'm going to hire for, regardless of what they're doing. I'm screening for empathy. I have found great folks from all disciplines across development and even some that didn't come from software development. Yeah. Frequently when they come from inside development and they move over into live services production, it's not generally somebody that came up in game development as a producer. It's frequently somebody that came up through customer service or somebody who came up through QA or somebody who came up as an engineer of some kind. But it's almost never somebody that came up as a producer because it's different kinds of production. It's a different mindset, developing a game feature as opposed to thinking about running the live service all the time. So I look for folks who have interests and hobbies and activities outside of work that could potentially lead them to having this kind of mindset. So one of the things that has been pretty indicative over the years of somebody's got the right mindset is if somebody made Eagle Scout or the equivalent of what Eagle Scout is for whatever organization they happen to be part yeah. of. 
right? Mm -hmm. That is a lot of follow through and problem solving and organization at a young age, right? It doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be a perfect fit, but that candidate likely is going to have a first conversation with me compared to an equivalent candidate that does not have that. And then the other side of it is making sure that within your organization, you are building the right technology foundations that are going to let you do what you want to do. So things like a really robust build system, right? Some sort of CICD, though I call it CIDD, it's continuous integration, deliberate delivery, because in games, we don't want to ship all the time, right? We need patch yeah. notes and community rollouts, right? And teaser videos or whatever it happens to be. That's that's a games thing, right? It's not like we're a web-based software like Amazon where you could just ship a little yeah. feature all the time, right? So continuous integration, deliberate delivery. We want to make sure that we are building and testing and building and testing and building and testing all the time. So if you don't invest in that, if you have a game studio that you're starting up and you have only invested mm-hmm. in really good game developers and you haven't brought your DevOps folks in and you've relied on the skeleton that you're your CTO put in when you started to manage your DevOps, like you're going to start falling over at some point as you scale. And that's going to be really, really hard to recover from because you've incurred all this debt around it, right? So making sure that you have those foundational technologies that allow you to iterate fast and solve problems quickly are things that lead you to a better live service. Well, and actually I love the CICD versus CIDD. It sounds like a little thing like a perhaps a nuanced thing, but I remember when we had that conversation at Riot and we were going back and forth on that for some time. Like actually, I remember when we were working on the league client update, we built the core technology to make it something that would go gracefully with continuous delivery, like something that could be shipped very rapidly and very quickly all the time. And um, what's funny is in 2012, 2013, 2014, that was kind of the direction we were talking about going. But then to your point around 2016, 2017, we were were like, well, wait a second. That's actually not what the game teams need. That's not what the game needs. And so we kind of walked back from that a little bit. And I think the strategy did change more to deliberate delivery. And so it's actually interesting because again, this is the stuff you need to think about, right? And there's not really like a right answer. You almost have to just constantly iterate on and reflect on the needs of the organization to and the product to be able to like find the right path. And actually, I would say the mistake we made on, on my project was we didn't even realize that we had an out-of-date sort of frame on the world. And then when we released it, a lot of League of Legends was frustrated about that because they were like, well, we didn't need a lot of these bells and whistles, we, this isn't how we release the product. And we were like, well, that's not what you said. And oh, shit, that was four years ago. You know, it's like and it's just like, again, there's again this coming back to like, how do you prioritize? How do you stay in touch? How do you keep the collaboration and the the so that everyone shares the most up to date understanding of like what is actually required? Because it's not like, OK, we set up the lives. We followed the 21 point live service playbook and it's all set up now. It's like our like understanding of what it meant to ship League of Legends is evolving over time. Right. Right. And you you want to take industry best practices, whatever they happen to be, and incorporate them into your org. You don't want to just go by the book because there's no book written for your live service, except the one that you're writing right now as Mm -hmm. you publish it, right? You have different 
developers, you have a different player base, you have uh, different publisher needs, potentially all these things. And you have to make sure that they're integrated in there so that you do the right thing at the right time. But you want to build those foundational technologies, right? Your continuous integration, your load testing, your release process. Like, how do we ship this game? How do we make sure that the players can get our game and and play it successfully? How much do we interrupt them when we have to do a patch, right? What does it mean when we update the servers as opposed to update the client? All those kinds of questions that that the earlier you start thinking about them, maybe you don't solve them right away. You've at least thought about them enough that you've put that in your engineer's heads and potentially they've written their code. So some stuff is stubbed out. So we're ready to drop something in here at some point. We're not going to make it right now. We're ready that we could drop this thing in here. That is way easier than, oh my goodness, we wrote this and we did not account for it at all. And now we have to rewrite this entire module just to allow this new feature to ship or something. So Josh, a topic that we've bounced around but haven't hit directly is release cadence. This is something different games have different release cadences, dramatically different, sometimes none or six months or ad hoc and other times almost daily or weekly or something like that. How do you think about release cadence in, from a live service perspective? Yeah, so release cadence is interesting because it's going to drive a huge amount of your development decisions, a huge amount of your staffing decisions, a huge amount of your product decision. If you decided that you're going to release every two weeks and you want to do it effectively, as we ended up doing at League, it means that you have to shape your organization in a very particular way. Right, You have to have enough overlap and redundancy in order to manage that sort of cycle because not every team's going to release every two weeks. Like That's a lot, right? But if you are releasing every two weeks, how do you make sure you have enough content? How do you make sure you have the right people paying attention to ensuring the release is out successfully? So that likely means you have a rotation of release managers and release engineers driving on it because otherwise nobody ever gets any time to work on improving the system or just not be actively trying to drive something out the door at that point. So it's going to drive your development. Like you're going to focus much earlier on automated testing and load testing and things like that if you want to release every two weeks, because the only way you can do that successfully is if you put all that sort of automation in place, right? That you have that kind of tool. I would say though, that when you pick a cadence, whatever you've decided you're going to pick for your product, you need to make sure it's the right one for your community. And you need to make sure it's predictable. So nothing is as frustrating for a community as thinking you're going to get a patch every month and then not getting that patch, especially if then you don't get any communications around it. So mm-hmm. I would prefer to, in my mind, you're one of two things. You're 100% predictable or you're 100% unpredictable. Mm-hmm. You do your best not to land anywhere in the middle, right? It could be the kind of organization where when you get ready to ship a patch, then you start talking about it, right? And everybody gets hyped, right? And then you may not ship one for another three months or six months or whatever it happens to be, depending on on what kind of game you have. Or it's the, you've got it on rails and you're going to ship 24 patches a year like League does uh, with great content and game balance in every patch. Either way, you're going to structure your organization to make sure that that happens successfully. Or you're going to burn people out so fast and you're going to cycle through them that you're going to end up not being successful at what you wanted your release cadence to be. Yeah. Yeah, I I look at that spectrum as almost like World of Warcraft on one end where it's like every Tuesday at certain point, I don't know if this is still true, actually, I haven't played WoW in a while, but it was just like 
weekly downtime. It's weekly downtime. It's going to happen. It's going to take several hours, you know, worldwide, no matter where you Tuesday at this time. And then on the other extreme, the one Aaron and I have used as the example is like Escape from Tarkov, where they've very explicitly gone the completely unpredictable. Just like, look, people are like the YouTube commentary is like, well, it's usually somewhere between four and 12 months. And so we think it's something like this. And it's, it tends to be on a Thursday. And so we start looking for the signs. And it's almost this weird game that the community plays of like, when's the next one? But they very explicitly until I think days before, they really just do not give you a strong indication of it's coming here. I don't know if they're pivoting on that now where they're trying to provide a little bit more of like, here's a roadmap and, and some amount of predictability. But yeah, I, I love what you said. Either be predictable so your community can have expectations and have them met or have communication from you when they're not or be entirely unpredictable and have that be the norm and the expectation and the standard. Good stuff. You should go early in the week if you're going to ship software. Give yourself uh, the opportunity to react to whatever issues might come up without blowing up people's weekends. So no Friday afternoon patches. Oh, never patch on a Friday. Never, never, never patch on a Friday. The only reason you patch on a Friday is if your systems are down. Like that's it. That's the only thing. If the game's unplayable in some way, that's the only reason you would patch. I like getting it in the can at the end of the week. And then first thing Monday morning, we push it out because then it gives us the maximum amount of runway to react to anything if we need to. Yeah. So, I want to actually get, and I, this might be a little bit of a tangent. You've mentioned a few different systems. You said self-healing. What you meant by that, you kind of described like, hey, this is a system that can detect when something is going wrong with it and restarts itself in the classic way of like, hey, something's wrong with the machine, turn it off, turn it back on again, see if that fixes it. You've mentioned CIDD. When you're thinking about this technically, what are those technical tools that you think about? Yeah, so let's think about feature flagging as Mm -hmm. the overall concept. It's pretty common across the industry now. There are a lot of third-party feature flagging tools that you can use to integrate into your your game, whatever you happen to be making. What this allows you to do is on many levels, you can uh, decide for yourself, figure out who has access to this thing that you have released, right? So you could have a certain user base that say as your beta testers for a feature, they're defined as a group in your feature flagging software. You push this new feature out, the only people that can see it and use it are the people in this section, right? Mm -hmm. So then you can do phased rollouts. You can start with a, like, you could randomly choose 5% of the people to get a feature and then watch the data as those 5% of the people use the feature. And then if that data looks like it's trending in the wrong way, you could just disable it. Trending the right way, you can add some more people and see how it works under loads. More people Mm -hmm. works under load. It allows you to do really binary things. Say like in the case of League of Legends, you ship a champion update and somehow that champion is broken, one of their abilities. Somehow something got missed, right? Way less likely now than say back in the early days before we had a lot of those systems in place. We had an option to disable a champion. That had been in League forever, right? We could just turn off a champion. You know what we didn't have? We didn't have the ability to turn off specific items, thus leading to the mm-hmm. infamous uh, six black cleaver debacle mm-hmm. that happened back in the day, right? You just stack mm-hmm. those stack those things up. Well, what we wanted to do was, if we could have turned off black cleaver right then and there, that would have been a slightly degraded experience for anybody whose normal build might have needed black cleaver. Everyone could have still kept playing a basically balanced game. Because we couldn't do that at that point in time, now 
people were just getting raffle stomped by those bills that had six black cleavers. And the only thing that we could do about it was just crank and crunch to fix that and then push that update out globally. And that is, I would say, that is a minimum 48-hour thing, even for a game like League of Legends that doesn't have to deal with first-party publishers like PlayStation or Microsoft or Google or Apple or anything like that, which just inherently extend your release cycle. So we had 48 hours where every ranked match was essentially ruined. We had 48 hours. The only way you could play bro matches is you told the pros, just don't pick it, right? Which they're pros, right. so they'd, they'd have to respect that. But there was no way to enforce it to tell them not to do it. Right. And immediately after that, a great engineer that we used to work with named Tom Wang heard about this problem, came down, talked to us all about it, uh, went away and looked at the code and figured out a way that we could easily, through a web interface, disable individual uh, items as we needed to. And that kind of philosophy, Crazy. that granularity where you can control those things. You have separated your content and your configuration from your code. So it really mm-hmm. allows you to do stuff. And now that type of system now allows champions and things like that to be balanced almost immediately by the teams mm-hmm. that own that balance. They don't have to wait two weeks for a patch if something's totally broken. They can just update the values on the server and bang, every next time everybody starts a game, right? They inherit those kinds of things. Yeah, it's interesting. That is actually elements of CD in there. There's a lot of CD in there. And it's seeing like, what is the problem we need? And what system do we have that can help solve this? And when the only system you have is the hammer, and the hammer is doing a build and shipping out another release, that's all you're going to use. And so if you can add those additional tools into your toolbox, usually due to a third party feature flagging system these days, it's almost, almost irresponsible to try and write your own right now comparatively, right? Like focus on the game development aspect, right? The thing that you really want to do and then pay pay a third party to do that other stuff for you. I want to take a quick break from the podcast. Over the last few years, producers have been asking Aaron and I, what's my role? What are the skills I should develop? How do I advance in my career? Game production is in a rough state. We're launching a course to help. It's called Succeeding in Game Production, What You Weren't Taught. Early feedback from our beta testers has been overwhelmingly positive. So we're moving into early access. If that's of interest, check it out in the show notes or head to buildingbettergames.gg and click course. Thanks. Let's get back to the podcast. What else fits in this space where you go, these are the these are the technical tools that are at your disposal that you should think about and understand, hey, is this something that's relevant to you? Uh, what you want is a robust monitoring and alerting system mm-hmm. built into your your server side of your software in particular. Uh, though there's, there's arguments to be made that there's some good stuff that could be put in the client. That you have to be worrying about things like GDPR and stuff, obviously, right. That, right? Like data privacy. Right. The earlier that you know that there could be a problem, the easier it is to resolve it before it's an emergency. Mm-hmm. So if you have data and it's data over time and it alerts if, say, your capacity on your servers, which you determine based on all the other stuff that you've done, you, we can have X number of players per server. And if that grows above 70%, then you can scale your service at that point, whether you auto scale it or you, somebody manually has to push the button to scale it. Either way, right? you've got that alerting in place. The first thing is to understand what your problem is. Then you build the alert in, and then you define essentially a playbook for what the response to that alert is. And then eventually you can automate that. Right? There are so many things that I just want to automate so that people can think about solving 
the next problem, right? If it's a right. known predictable thing, we should be looking at automating it through a tool or whatever. So this monitoring and alerting lets us know there's a problem maybe before there's a problem. And it certainly lets us know when there is a problem and allows us to get all the right eyeballs on it as quickly as, as possible, right? You have that alerting system hooks up to a system like PagerDuty, software like PagerDuty, which you set up on-call rotations and yep. escalations and all there in there and just uses your regular phone and app has an app so that you just, the right people get called right now whenever, if there's a problem, right? It doesn't rely on somebody noticing and then somebody yep. writing an email or picking up a phone call or sending a Slack message or anything like that. The automation is taking care of as much of that as possible. What are the other metrics that you think support both the game as a live service and also the culture of live service within the studio? Everything that you can capture that's about the end-to-end -end player journey is something that's going to inform your live service experience, right? How long does it take somebody from the time they click download till the time they're in their first game? Like what kind of friction is there, right? That's part of the live service too. If you don't have people coming into your live service game, you might as well not have a game at that point, mm -hmm. right? So we, how do we do that? How do we know when and if service is degrading? Is it much like we had, who was it? Brad, Brad, it was one of our release engineers. And in the very early days of League, before we had a lot of alerting and monitoring in place, he wrote a quick tool that just parsed all legal leverage chat logs in real time to look for instances and variations of the term lag. That was our first alerting, right? In a lot of ways to know that potentially something was going wrong with the server. So, mm -hmm. And you're going to have, with your live service, you're going to need to figure out what's important to you, right? Is latency important? Are you a competitive, like a MOBA or something like that? Right? Then you have to be worrying about those kinds of things. If, if you're an MMO, uh, maybe it's maybe it's not as important. And, and maybe there are ways that you can code around that to make it even less impactful for folks that are playing your game. So you're going to be looking at, at numbers like that in your live service. You're going to be looking at day-over-day -day concurrent users because you're going to start seeing a pattern very quickly, patch to patch for your players, right? When a new patch comes out, you see a big spike of users, both total users over the day, as well as your concurrent users that are logged, all the people that are logged onto a server at any one time. And you're going to see that. And if that pattern breaks, that tells you something. You don't know what necessarily what it is right away. It's just, you know, there's something going on there, right? Yeah. Oh, oh, look, there was a major weather event in a region and a lot of power outages. So people weren't playing. Okay, well, now we know why those numbers correlate or whatever it happens to be. But um, yeah. you're looking, so you're looking, you're finding what the right metric is for every phase of your operation and understanding what it might tell you. Because then that leads to the next metric that you want to look at or the next problem that you want to solve. Before we were talking about the load test and one of the things that came up for me was like at Riot, the load test was one of the first like major examples of a set of tools and a process and a technology that like was for the whole game. And engineers across many different teams had to interact with this monolithic thing. And we had to figure out a way to make that work. Like it wasn't necessarily related to the thing you were building on your feature team. Um, and we had those platform engineers all over the place distributed throughout the company, but they had to like come together and like figure that out. And I'm sure that that evolved over time and there were nuances about that. I know that there were some platform engineers that worked more closely with the load test harness 
than others. But the thing that comes up for me, the question is, is like, how do you figure that kind of stuff out? Because, you know, here we were talking about this idea of total ownership and like trying to compartmentalize ownership as much as you can so that everyone knows that like they have end to end responsibility. But at the same time, I feel like that was the first example of like an emerging global layer across all teams. And then when we started to get into this other stuff like CICD and automated test harnesses that went across like functional test harnesses that went across the whole product and all these things you started to have and the knock and all that you started to have more and more people that were just like on that layer, the global layer. And it's like, how do you know? I mean, obviously the, the obvious answer is like, you try to do your best to make a deliberate and thoughtful decision about how to like separate your organization or not separate it. But how do you think through that problem? Because I think as we scaled, we did run into situations where we're like, it's not reasonable for every single team to have to worry about this thing all the time. Like we do need to kind of abstract that away a little bit from the team. So like, how do you think through that challenge? Because I view that as an organizational challenge. Absolutely. While you want everyone in your organization to be thinking about the live service, you still need specialists that are good at particular things, right? And asking, say, a UI UX engineer to manage backend load testing services, that's not a good use of anybody's time at that point. And so when you identify that, when you you have a studio that needs those special needs, I look at it as like a core technology or core features layer. Like these are things that are going to be needed by the studio, right? In order to be successful, not by a particular feature team, but by the entire studio. So mm. load testing being one of those, right? Uh, feature flagging being another one of those kinds of services. Toggles is essentially a subset of modern feature flagging. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's so interesting. And and I, I just had a bit of an epiphany now that you're here and it's cool. We can kind of break this down and talk about this. And the epiphany was that you might have a group of people working on some kind of functional piece of your overall architecture that is like, again, at that global layer. So whether it's a load test or automated testing or the, somebody might build a system for feature toggles and feature flags, but the team, the individual teams are still expected to own their interface with that thing. It's not like, okay, well, I don't have load test rules for my new feature. So the load test guys are going to handle that. It's like, no, no, no. They're going to build the system that you can use to load test your feature, but you're still going to be responsible for making sure your stuff is in the load test and that it works properly. So it's interesting. It's, it's a nuance that I feel like, again, it's one of those things I take for granted, but it's like, I can imagine that can affect how you develop those systems, right? It's not meant to be a black box that is just over there in the corner where it's like, and then the load test people handle the load testing stuff. It's like, no, they're greasing the wheels by giving you the tools and the interface so that you can do that on your own. Currently at Cold Iron, we're working on our next unannounced title. And one of the things we've rolled out recently is the fact that we expect everybody that's checking in code to be writing automated tests for mm -hmm. the code that they're checking, right? Now that the framework that manages and executes and gathers the data and everything on automated tests, that was designed and implemented by our core features team and all that. Those individual programmers and designers are all responsible for making the tests, right? And the team has provided them with lots of education, hands-on experience, examples on how to make them, taking their feedback and made the tool easier to use, like all the same way you would with 
mm-hmm. a product that faced your players, right? When you got the feedback yeah. on it. And what it means now is, is that in the early days, we got a couple tests a week would be added in the system. And now it's multiple tests a day you see showing up in the system because of that just accelerates over time. When you treat it like a product like that, that people are consuming inside your studio. Uh, build layer is there too, right? Your whole yeah. CICD system, build system is there. It's highly likely that your release and packaging system, right? Your first party management, like all that stuff is developed at a studio level. And that's all part of your live operation too, because it all involves how do we effectively get this game out to our players that want it. Yeah, yeah. And there's, when I think about organization, one of the things I thought was really cool was how we started sending developers in mass to go do frontline customer service. That feels like it's another one of those organizational things because I think some companies look at customer service as almost like a shield for the organization. And we were like, no, there's a function here that's valuable in that we want people always talking with the players every day, but we need developers. And again, that kind of goes with that same philosophy, right? It's like there you have all these tools at your disposal to interface in the right ways, but you still need to interface. Like you still need to engage. Like it's none of this is an excuse for you to disengage. And so that feels like a big takeaway for me when, cause, and I also find myself asking like, what are there any other organizational gotchas or like things that like, as you scale your live service that you need to think about in the way that you organize people and separation of concerns or all that stuff. I'm a so. huge fan and try to implement everywhere I am, uh, fully cross-functional teams. So, and that's not just in terms of your skilled developers and your product leads, and your delivery leads and your QA folks. That's also your marketing folks. That's also your yeah. customer service and, and publishing folks, right? All of those people being involved in the life cycle of whatever your product is just means you're going to be delivering a better product for the player because you're getting all of these perspectives along the way. And a bunch of that perspective is, how do we make sure that this doesn't cause pain to the player? If you're not causing pain to the player, you're likely not causing pain to the inside of your organization either. When I started at Zwift, they had semi-fully cross-functional teams, right? They had not integrated yet a lot of the business needs, the customer service, the marketing folks, things like that in there. So that was one of the things I started rolling in. Hey, let's have all of them in our planning sessions. Let's have all of them in the meetings. Let's, let's decide how we manage those communications so that we're sure we're getting all the right information back and forth. How are they involved in the early ideation of a new feature to bring that sort of customer perspective? All right. Thanks all for listening to this episode. I want to do a quick recap of what we've talked about today. First, live service culture is where you start. Questions like how do you incentivize total ownership and how do you through that connect the team building the feature to the problem and pain that emerges are huge. Live service is not just a bunch of tools or some teams that are off in a corner. It, it should permeate everything at your organization. That implies also that traits that you're going to want across your entire organization are empathy and grit. The ability to connect with others, to understand your players, to understand other developers, and also to be willing to push through when things get tough, uh, to keep trying to find solutions, not get frustrated and sort of bow out early. There are some technical tools that you should get familiar with if you're in game production or you're in game leadership and you think about if your studio needs these. You probably don't need all of them. Maybe you do. But things like CICD or, as Josh pointed out, DD, 
deliberate delivery, automated testing and automated test harnesses, load tests, feature flags for your player segmentation, feature flags for your feature and content toggling, and sort of the, the intermixing there. Also think about your metrics. Yes, starting like with things like uptime or first to know can be good, but also look at things that represent your end-to-end experience, whatever that is, that'll be unique to you. If you know what the normal cycle, as an example of like what your CCU is throughout a patch life cycle, you can spot problems before anyone else. Also, it's not just about having the systems or metrics. It's about teaching your teams to operationalize them and to maintain them over time. Having a great automated test harness is useless if you don't have anybody writing automated tests for it. So same thing with metrics. If nobody uses them and no one adds to them as things come up, they will become out of date. They will go out of shape. Extreme cross-functionality gives you more perspective and a better understanding of the pain you might cause players. This can include people from unexpected places like analytics, publishing, even your customer player support space. Uh, Don't limit this to just, oh, I've got my artists and my engineers and my designers together. Think bigger. It can help you in the live service world. Okay, so now I'm going to start talking about some of the traits of people that really excel in live service. If you let a simple mistake throw you out of whack or are easily panicked, if you're on the sharp edge of live service, you're going to have a bad time. Calm is contagious. You need to be able to be calm and and spread that around while still reacting to the crisis. A lot of people who are really good in live service are looking at what might go wrong and thinking ahead and not just about what might happen, but also how to respond to it. In a strange way, in an unexpected way, anxiety can be a helpful tool here in the personality toolkit. Communication skills are going to be very important for people in live service. Being able to be concise, clear, regular as needed, and actionable for whatever your audience is matters a lot. And then regardless of how live service you are, you should know what it means to release something, to respond to what's happening to players, and also to keep implementers connected to the player pain. That's whether you're doing a full-on always online multiplayer experience, or you're doing a standalone box product, or you're a small team with somewhere in the middle. Josh, anything you want to point people to as resources, things you want to plug, anything like that? We're hiring at Cold Iron. We still need some folks. So you go to coldironstudios.com, take a look at uh, the kind of people and the kind of skills that we're looking for right now. And uh, we'd love to hear from you if you've got those skills, definitely. When it comes to Things I've read or listened to that I think are really valuable. There's a very easy to read book called The Checklist Manifesto that uh, every new person that starts in live services, I have them look at. It helps you think about the mindset, what you need in in a bunch of ways in live services. Uh, I'm a big fan of anything by uh, Brene Brown around vulnerability, like the ability to say you're wrong and admit that things failed. Like that's key to operating good light service, right? And to do it as an organization. Uh, I really like anything by Simon Sinek for leadership. He conveys the concepts in a way that's very easy to digest. And then any of the standard leadership books that might be out there, like they're all going to be good to you in some way and they're going to help you in live services. I would certainly look at something like Crucial Conversations. Being in live services means that you have to have some hard, hard talks sometimes with folks. And having the skill to do that makes it easier. I don't think it'll ever make it easy. Definitely makes it easier. And you can you can hit me up on LinkedIn. I mentor a lot of people across all disciplines of game development. Uh, I'm at an age where a 
lot of friends have kids or nephews or nieces, friends that are graduating from high school or college and looking to get into game development. Uh, and I've uh, advised a lot of them. And as time permits, I'm happy to advise folks and help them along their career journey. Awesome. Thank you, Josh. Did you enjoy this content? Join game developers around the world and sign up for the Building Better Games newsletter at buildingbettergames.gg slash newsletter. Again, that's buildingbettergames.gg slash newsletter. Link is down in the show notes. Every two weeks, we will deliver one actionable step that will increase your chances of delivering a successful game straight to your inbox. Thanks for listening.